Hello, everyone. This is James Dobson. And as we open today's broadcast, I want to offer a word of encouragement to the hurting individual that's listening to us right now. You know, one who has, for one reason or another, felt rejected and unloved by others or by God and uh, who may be going through a very difficult time and really feeling no sense of purpose. And there are many, many people out there who have felt at one time or another just like you do today, and yet they have found meaning and purpose. And today we're going to find out how. There's hope for you too, and uh, we have something today that just may be what you need. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Doctor, and let me add my welcome to our listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us for another broadcast, uh, really a unique program uh, for today. You do want to listen in as long as you can, I can assure you. Uh, I do want to mention here that the recorded message we're about to hear doesn't have the best technical quality, but we felt so strongly about the content, we just didn't want to pass this one up. Uh, with that said, Doctor, why don't you go ahead and set things up for us? Well, John, as you know, we have a process here at Focus on the Family. It's been established uh, for a period of about 15 or 18 years, uh, whereby we receive tapes uh, sent to us by friends from around the world who are suggesting that we consider airing the recordings on Focus on the Family. And then we have several staff members who have a good ear for what might be helpful to our listeners, and they evaluate the tapes for acceptability. And then those tapes that get past that checkpoint are sent to me, and in due time, uh, Shirley and I, or sometimes only I, uh, listen to them and make a final decision. And I know you like to listen when you're on your treadmill exercising. Uh, I do that. You know, I have an hour a day right there that I can listen and sometimes do. Uh, on other occasions, it's when Shirley and I are out for a walk or we're driving in the car. Uh, but our lives have, have been enriched by hearing uh, many of the stories and testimonies from people who've lived through very interesting experiences. Uh, and, of course, I've heard some of the, the most moving and helpful speeches that have been given in a live audience situation. And uh, we're going to let our listeners hear uh, one such tape today. And, frankly, this one passed through many different hands at Focus on the Family before we finally decided to air it on the broadcast. And I think people will understand why in a minute or two. It'll be very apparent. We really wanted to uh, to test this to see how it impacted some members of our staff. Uh, every message affects different people different ways. And this one, well, we got a very positive response to it from our staff members. And the decision was made to go ahead and put it on the air today. This tape was sent to us by uh, Reverend Greg Byman, a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, it's a story of a woman named Iris Blue who has taken a rather rugged path through life. And uh, I'm going to stop right there and let her tell her own story. Let me add that there is a surprise near the end of her story that leads to our next broadcast. And so I hope our listeners will be able to stay with us all the way through the end. Uh, and then they'll be very pleased, I think, with how this story ties in with what we hear next time. Here's Iris Blue speaking at a pastor's conference in Indiana. Well, it is good to be here. Don't panic. I am not a preacher. I'm a satisfied customer. So I just love the Lord. He's done a work in my life, and I love telling it. I was raised in a Baptist church when I was a little girl put in a cradle roll, and I heard about Jesus. I pledged my allegiance to Jesus Christ and his church and its activities when I was a young girl going off to GA camp. 
And I did a lot of different things that Baptist kids do. At 10 years old in a vacation Bible school, and they had one of those flaming evangelists come, you know, on Friday night after they'd done taught you how to make your little noodle necklace and everything. They came, and, and they had all the 10-year-olds sitting up front, and he preached on hell for about 45 minutes with the heat up. And he said, now, look, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. There wasn't one person in the building had to think about that for a while. You know, like, uh, let me give you my answer Thursday. Everybody and their dog raised their hand, and he starts snapping his finger. You know how they do, hang up. And he boys jailed him. And he starts snapping his finger and said, if you raise your hand, don't want to go to hell, run. And boy, and I run. I was crying. And so my mother really thought I got saved. I don't know why, but for some reason, if you cry in church, they think you really got saved. I cried when my dog got run over, but they didn't think I got saved. But anyway, uh, for some reason, that was a real evidence. So I cried then, and so from then on, no matter what happened in my life, they just kept telling me to rededicate my life, rededicate my life. So I'd rededicate my life, because there's only three invitations, and most Baptists, they quit giving the third one. It's either get saved, rededicate your life, join the church, that's four, or surrender to missions. So they just kind of dropped that mission thing, because they never see nobody do that no more, you know, and it just got old. And so the things that started happening in my life, I just wasn't used to what was going on, because I started liking boys in the incubator. <laughs> I liked them. And uh, I would try to, I'd try to look sexy and lean up against the locker, you know, and look cute, and the locker cave in. I was big. I was six foot three at 12 years old, so I was bigger than the teachers. I was bigger than everybody in our school. The teachers would raise their hand and ask me for permission to go to the bathroom. I hated it. I didn't like it. And see, the world, the world had told the girls, you know, if you don't have a certain kind of body, you're not a real woman. Well, I did finally get me a boyfriend. He's about this tall. I could have carried him under my arm, but... Uh, he had a complex, and the world had showed him what a real man was. So he wore combat boots with spurs and, and a, a blue jeans, you know, and he wore his uh, chain belt off the motorcycle, and he bought him a big motorcycle. And it was so big, he'd have to kind of fall over on one leg, and he had a big vocabulary. You've seen him kind of, uh, and he just pulled up and snapped his finger and said, get on. And it made me feel so feminine. So I got on the back, and we popped a wheelie without even moving. But um, we took off, and I found out why he liked me. He liked me because of my legs. Now, not that they were pretty, but they were long and his were short. So we'd pull up the red light. He'd say, put your feet down. I had to hold the motorcycle up at the red light. I had a terrible, terrible complex. The little boy I had a crush on in elementary school. That's why he was afraid of me. He thought I was going to crush him. But he walked up to me one day and asked me if I'd carry him piggyback. And in my heart, I thought, piggyback? Not exactly what I had in mind, darling, but, you know, I really wanted him to open the door for me and treat me like I was a lady. I just wanted to feel valuable. I just wanted to feel like somebody thought I was special. And, and he wants to ride me like a horse. I didn't want that, but my little computer starts saying, if you don't do it, he's not going to like you. And it doesn't sound real perverted, but it actually started in church, is that I began to compromise what my dreams was. And I said, get on. And I carried him piggyback. And I'd already learned in church especially don't let anybody know what's really going on inside just put that smile on and i told the best big jokes and nobody knew i was hurting inside and i ran home though and i said why am i so big mother and she said god did it i wanted to whoop god i thought why did he do that you know start out making a football player and said whoops i need a girl and oh it was terrible i just uh i wasn't impressed with his god stuff and i finally figured out why everybody looks so sad you already see some of y'all and I thought, that's what it is. God's pulled a trick on every one of them, so they come to church just daring you, you know. And so I just wasn't impressed with church at all. And I didn't think God was a very good answer from why I was big. The other thing that started real young was rebellion. And it started, maybe you've heard your kids do this. You ever heard them go, 
You know, you say, go clean the room. Well, I don't know how to spell yet, but I know the definition. And the definition, they want to turn around and say, look, darling, one day I'm going to be my own boss and I might even slap you. But I know if I talk like that at eight, I'm in big trouble. So I'll abbreviate it. Or you won't even know what I'm thinking. I'm walk out of the room. And I got away with it. Then one day I dropped something on my foot and a cuss word came out. My mother said, <gasps> I learned real quick, all you got to do is convince your mother you're not as bad as some other mother's kid and they let you get away with it. Before long, I was doing stuff my mama couldn't imagine. And when I was only 13 years old, thinking freedom was doing whatever I wanted to do, I just wanted to get away from home and not nobody tell me what to do. I ran away from home. And I'd get arrested occasionally for different crimes because before the weekend was out, everything in my life that I said I would never do, I did. And by the following week, I was working at Topper's nightclub and started doing drugs. I started stealing. And when I would get arrested and they would take me to jail, they would take my fingerprints and they would take my picture and then they'd ask me a stupid question. They'd say, what's your religion? And so the thing is that I found out that being a Baptist don't do a thing for you, that you must be born again. And I found out that you can know a lot about Jesus and can quote scriptures and be like me and win a blue ribbon for being the fastest on the draw. But if you don't know him, you're a loser. And I, my loser might be shaped a little different than other people's losers, but the real truth is if you don't know Jesus, you're a loser. And if people don't know him out there and we're not letting him show in here, we might as well give up because the only hope they got is for us to be real. But what happened in my life is that I ended up getting arrested finally for armed robbery. And when I went to jail, they didn't ask me all those questions to release me to my parents' custody like before. But because of the seriousness of the crime, they kept me in jail till I could be tried as an adult. I stayed in jail nine months went through horrible withdrawals. And by the way, I didn't come from a bad home. I came from a daddy and mama that loved me. I came from family that would have given their life for me. One of the biggest parts of our ministry is when all the people are gone, the little secret messages that people want to come slip in our hands or call us or come and whisper and look around and make sure nobody else is looking. When some mama with a broken heart will say, my son's in trouble. They wouldn't dare tell their own friends. They got a heartache if they'll wait. When they see somebody, maybe won't judge them, I guess. And they'll come and say, I got a heartache in my own family. People all over the place claim to be Christians, claim to know Jesus with no reality whatsoever. What ended up happening is I went to prison. I was sentenced to eight years in prison. And they told me if I'd be good, I could get out soon. But I never was good because my dream had never changed. I wanted to be a lady. I wanted to be feminine and pretty and somebody to like me. But when you got this kind of body, what do you do with it? I learned how to daydream. That's another part that we found that's very unique in my testimony is the daydreaming because... I found out I'm not alone. There's some of the little fancy, wonderful ladies that come and whisper to me, too, that even though they may have a husband and a pew full of kids and a beautiful home, that they waltz in their kitchen with their own broom, daydreaming, pretending, like I used to. The way I daydreamed is I'd get in a fight on purpose and get locked in solitaire, and down there in solitaire where nobody could see me, I would daydream that a doctor would operate on me and pull me apart, and inside this great big body would be a little bitty pretty girl. I'd be so Honey, men would just fall at my feet. Now, they had fallen at my feet before, but it's because I decked them, not because I was so pretty. <laughs> so I just dreamed the other day I wanted to be a lady. I would dream that he'd call me gracious, and, and I'd plan birthday parties and dinners and all those wonderful little things. And down there in that cell, I just wasted three years of my life daydreaming away. I stayed a total of seven years in the prison altogether, and when I got out, within hours, I was back on drugs. My little daddy picked me up at the uh, prison and mother was cooking me a smorgasbord, but I wanted a hamburger on the way. And on the way, I hadn't ridden in a car in seven years, so when I got in that car with that greasy hamburger running down my elbow, all of a sudden, I had to stop. 
My daddy's on the side of the road with his handkerchief putting ice on my head telling me that I was the spirit of Christmas and his star on the tree and I was his Easter bunny and all that stuff and he's saying that I was daddy's little girl. He was encouraged to give up on me one time when I got in a knife fight because they gave me psychological tests and personality evaluations and they say statistics show she will never change. She's incorrigible and a degenerate. I didn't know what either one of those words meant till after I met Jesus. But it means there is no hope for this person that's worse than a pervert. But I got out of prison and within hours I was back on drugs. When I got home, even though I was high, my mother marched me to my bedroom and on my bed was piled seven years of Christmas presents and Valentines and Easter baskets and birthday presents, a lot of loves. I found out mama's and daddy's loves can encourage you or discourage you, but it cannot change you. If love could change me, I'd have been changed a long time ago, but I needed Jesus. Not even a mom and daddy can change a bad kid. What ended up happening was that after I'd been out of prison for a while, I started working in them old bars again and doing other stuff for long. I was running three of them, living in two filthy lifestyles, horrible drugs again, and no hope it looked like. My mother heard a message that if you have loved ones that prayed a prayer at one time, but they don't have any reality of Jesus in their life, why don't you take a deep breath instead of trying to get them to rededicate over and over? Just get honest and say they're lost. And my mama decided after 25 years, I think she's lost, really has the gift of discernment. And so what I did was I went to see my mother when she invited me to come see what she had cooked me a special meal, my favorite food. When I got there, my mama grabbed me by the shoulders and said, honey, you need Jesus. I made fun of her and pushed her hands away. And I said, you got to be kidding. You've never even smoked a real cigarette and you're miserable. And if God can't handle you, what in the world could he do with me? And I walked out making fun of her old God because she was so miserable. What's God done for her? I thought she would smoke a little dope just to hang out with some of y'all sour pussies. You know, I thought, man, if they just, she'd get high, she'd enjoy it better. But she was just, you know, man, I didn't like it. And I walked out and my mama went and got on her knees said, God, she's right, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a phony. Forgive me and cleanse me and fill me with your peace and presence. And whatever it takes, save my baby. Amen. Said, I don't want to go to heaven without her. My mama said she lifted me in one hand and my baby sister in the other and said, whatever it takes, arm, leg, eye, or even my death, I don't want to go to heaven without my baby. My mama did that and went back to church, told the whole church to pray for me. Up until then, she'd lied about me, trying to act like I was just off somewhere working or doing something. But when my mama got real and said, I don't care what y'all think, I just want my baby saved. She unzippered her heart and said, God, do whatever it takes. I went back to bars that looked bad for a while. Didn't look like her prayers were being answered for a few days. But in two weeks, a young man heard a message that we were to be a lighthouse to get ready for a harvest, to be expecting a harvest, looking for it and going out and bringing them in. And he picked me. One of our real popular evangelists said, you better leave her alone. She's a troublemaker. He said, if Jesus can save me, he can save her. And he kept witnessing to me. He'd roll tracks up in my toilet paper and and he'd tell me like, that valuable I was. He'd say, you know, you're so valuable. If you'd have been the only person in the whole world, Jesus would have come and died just for you. And he'd say, every hair on your head's numbered. And, and God loves you, Iris. And, oh, and then he'd call the bar late at night. And I'd be high. And I'd have to plug my ears up and go in the bathroom. It'd be so loud in there. And he'd say, I just called to tell you, you're not going to believe what I read. Jesus loves you. And I'd hang up on him. And he witnessed to me from Sunday to Thursday, and that was March 31st, 20 years ago, almost 21. And on March 31st, he called and said, Iris, would you meet me outside? I won't ever witness to you again. I just want to say bye. Whoa. Now, all week he'd been telling me how valuable and precious I was. So I went and sit out in his car. And he said, Iris, I can't see you anymore. 
because I made a commitment a long time ago that I wasn't going to mess with no tramps. I wasn't going to be around any. When he called me a tramp, I wanted to cut his throat. All week he'd been telling me that I was valuable and precious. And in one word, he called me garbage. What do you do with garbage? Put it on the corner and garbage men take it away. I hated him. I wanted to cut his throat. I hated him. And in the very next breath, he said, you think I'm not even a man because what you girls are trying to get me to do, I don't want to go for it. He said, I know it would feel good for a few moments, but I am more concerned about your eternity than a moment's pleasure for me. I've met men that would ruin anybody's life for a moment's pleasure, and this man is concerned about my eternity and my something I can't see or touch. And he's just weeping, and he said, Iris, Jesus could make you a lady. And when he said the word lady, for almost 21 years, I hadn't figured out how to tell you what happened inside of my life. It was like something busted open. I said, I want it. I want it so bad I couldn't stand it. I didn't have to consider, can I keep one club open? I got to make a living, God. I'll even call it Christian topless nightclub. You know, I knew that that was wrong. I didn't have to pray, Heavenly Father, can I just, you know, I knew there was, I knew what, even lost, I knew what was standing between me and God at that moment. And he said, well, if you'll receive Jesus, it's like a marriage. It's like saying, I do, not just saying, come in my heart. He said, that's what a lot of people do. They just want Jesus to come to them and do nice things and keep them well and meet their needs and pay their bills, but don't bug him. He said, just think if you were getting married and your husband said something like that. I said, I'm whooping. He said, well, the king of kings wants all of you. Are you ready? And I said, I'm ready. He said, well, if you mean business, pray out to that on the street corner. I said, okay. And I got out of the street corner and knelt down and, and he didn't trust me still. So when he prayed with me, he kept one eye open like this. He says, the Bible says, watch and pray. And he took my hand and he led me in a prayer. And he said, you know what a sinner's prayer really is? It's like a preacher giving a young bride and groom their marriage vows. And he said, Jesus, do you want her? He said, yes. I didn't hear nothing. But that's what he told me. He said, Iris, do you want Jesus? I went, yeah, I do. He said, Jesus, you know what it takes to get this gal. She ain't worth nothing. You really want? He wants you, Iris, whatever it takes. Do you want him? I said, I do. Anyway, he said, well, repeat these vows after me. I, Iris, give myself to you. And he laid me in a sinner's prayer. That night I stood up, I closed three clubs. To this day, I don't know where my furniture, my clothes, or my jewelry went where I was shacked up. I found out you don't have to get souvenirs. God can meet your needs. You don't have to go explain to the devil. He finds out real quick when it's real. God changed my life. I've been around the world. I met my Mr. Wonderful, led him to Jesus. Heard that verse, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I was an old maid and overweight. The only way I could do it is believe God. I said, okay, I'll fish for him twice. First, I told him how to meet Jesus. Then I told him if he didn't marry the person that leads you to Jesus, you lose your salvation. So, amen. <laughs> I have a little baby. God's blessed us. We got a home. We go all over the place. God's opening doors. It's unbelievable. We get in some places, he don't open doors. I'm convinced most of the time he lets us go is because people that have qualifications are too particular. So he lets those zero people go in their place. But I've been all over the place and nothing's ever thrilled me more. I've never graduated past that moment. That on March 31st, my testimony in reality is I knelt down on that street corner an old tramp. But I stood up a lady, clean, pure, forgiven, innocent, blameless, cherished. It says he desires my beauty. Y'all might not think I'm cute, but I don't care. Because the king of kings 
desires my beauty. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. You see, I've always been a loser, but today this loser won. Now the guilt is gone and I am like a little child again. And I can't wait to see another day begin. For I'll never, never, never thirst again. You see, I've got this living water that flows from deep within. I will never 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 thirst again i can drink my fill and never thirst That's a special woman uh, by the name of Iris Blue. And boy, is she singing like she means those <laughs> you words. You know she means it, John. Well, we've been listening to her story on today's uh, Focus on the Family broadcast. And that song, uh, written by our good friend Bill Gaither and three others, is called Never Thirst Again. <laughs> you know, John, uh, I found the Lord at an altar of prayer when I was only three years old. I've mm. talked about that before. And uh, while I have not lived a perfect Christian life, obviously, no one has, uh, I never really drifted very far from the decision that I made there as a toddler, and I never really felt I turned my back on the Lord. But what we've heard today, however, is the testimony of someone who has experienced just about everything uh, Satan and the world have to offer, and uh, it was very inspiring for me to hear what the Lord has done in her life. You know, her born-again experience really was a new birth in Christ. It was, and it's uh, for people in those circumstances where they come out of a very uh, rough life, if you will, Uh, it seems that God takes those passions and turns them for his glory. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul persecuting Christians yeah. to being you know, just a, a very zealous, faithful follower of Christ. And they know uh, what the Lord has done for them because the uh, before and after experience was so dramatic. Uh, I can't identify with that, but it sure is interesting to hear from someone who can. I mentioned Bill Gaither. I'm sure he would be very, very interested to hear of a story that occurred while Iris was over in the Holy Land. It's it's one of those amazing things that God orchestrates, and mm-hmm. you wouldn't know why a Muslim man happens to be walking by Jacob's well while she just happens to be singing that song, Never Thirst Again. And that man, who had been exposed to the gospel uh, on a number of occasions as a younger man, came to Christ as a result mm-hmm. of her singing that song. Oh, and, wouldn't you like to have been there? Wouldn't you like to have seen that uh, occur? I had a videotape of that moment. There she is singing this emotional song from her heart. And it touches the heart of a man who doesn't know Jesus. It's it's a fascinating way that God works and, again, takes those passions that we have in life and directs them for his glory. Uh, I mentioned at the start of the broadcast that there was a surprise near the end of this message, and uh, I was referring to Mr. Wonderful, as I was mm-hmm. called him, Dwayne Blue. And uh, we're going to hear how they met on our next program. Mm. Next time, uh, Dwayne is going to tell a story of his destructive way of life and how he found his way out. And it just might have 
uh, a little something to do with the lady that we've heard from today. It'll be our privilege to get his side of the story on how God uh, brought the two of them together. Uh, Dwayne and Iris Blue are now volunteer missionaries for the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they crisscross the country sharing their story of God's grace and forgiveness. Now, Doctor, she mentioned earlier that they had a baby. Yes. Uh, he's not a baby anymore, but uh, this woman has a sense of humor. Do you know what they named that child? <laughs> what they named him? Denim. Oh, Denim, Denim Blue. Blue. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> that's, uh, that's just a fun thing. Oh. Uh, well, John, uh, before we close, I want to refer back to something else that Ira said near the end of her message. She said that God was opening doors for her and her husband to share their story. And uh, she referred to Dwayne and herself as zero people. Uh, she was speaking tongue-in-cheek, I'm sure. There are no zero people. Mm -hmm. God loves every one of us. He places a great deal of value on all his creation, and that includes you and me. And uh, to our listeners, let me say that if you're hurting today and if you're feeling unloved at this moment, I hope this story has awakened something inside of you about the treasure that you are in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. Remember that Jesus was also rejected by men. First uh, Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What a hopeful scripture that is. And there's another message in what we've heard today. Um, Iris had two loving parents who just wouldn't stop praying for her. They cared so much. And you know that they felt like giving up at times, but they interceded for her all those years in which um, it just seemed hopeless. And yet God did a miracle in her life. And he can do that for the parents who are out there today, too, who have a daughter like Iris or a son like Dwayne who are far from God. And it looks as though they will never come back. Stay on your knees. The Lord is in the business of answering prayer. And uh, I hope that we've provided a little bit of encouragement for you today, too. No, I, I don't think there's any question about that, Doctor. And I hope our listening friends will call and request a tape of this program. Uh, that love is so powerful and irresistible. I hope our listeners have that thought impressed on their hearts. If so, and you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ, uh, please visit our website at family.org. That's family.org. Well, today's program was provided by Focus on the Family. Our executive producer is Jan Nations, and Jim Adam and Will Kaiser handled engineering and production duties. Our producer has been John Scott Welch. Your host is psychologist and author Dr. James Dobson. And I'm John Fuller inviting you back next time when we'll turn our hearts toward home. I've been around the world. I met my Mr. Wonderful Lady to Jesus. Heard that verse, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I was an old maid and overweight. The only way I could do it is believe God. I said, okay, I'll fish for him twice. First I told him how to meet Jesus. Then I told him to get married. The person that leads you to Jesus, you lose your salvation. So, I'm married. 
Oh my, I'm not sure about the theology there, but as you can tell, the audience loved that joke from our guest on the last Focus on the Family. Uh, she was talking about meeting her future husband, and today we'll hear his unique story. I'm John Fuller, and your host is author and psychologist Dr. James Dobson. I really hope you'll stay tuned for this fascinating story of God's redeeming work in the life of one aimless soul. Well, John, we heard a very, very special message last time. We did. Iris Blue, a special lady, shared her personal experience with us by way of recording. And I do hope that if our listeners were not tuned in yesterday, that they will write for a tape, because this is one that they're going to want to hear and want to have in their library. Uh, Iris was raised in a Christian home, but she became very, very rebellious. Uh, John, have you noticed that when young people or people of any age decide to turn away from common sense and what they know to be the values that they were taught or the Judeo-Christian value system, uh, that within months their lives have come apart. I mean, it absolutely destroys you. You can see a 16-year-old suddenly say, who needs you, and make that uh, left turn and uh, just very, very shortly, they have sexually transmitted diseases. They conceive babies. They're in trouble with the law. Uh, all kinds of difficulties occur. And that's what took place with Iris Blue. Uh, her rebellion led to a life of drugs. Uh, she spent a number of years in prison. She was into the bar scene. In fact, she operated three different nightclubs. Uh, she was involved in pornography. Her life was a wreck. But someone took the time to share a message of hope with her and let her know that she was valuable to God and that he loved her. And Iris had never felt loved in her entire life. And there's so many other people that are in that situation today. They don't think anybody cares and they have no value and no worth. But for Iris, her life soon turned around when she met the Lord face to face. And then it was just a little while later that she met her future husband. And his name is Dwayne Blue. And all we know about him from our last broadcast is that Iris was very, very persuasive in leading him to Christ. And then uh, also very, very relentless in uh, trying to get Dwayne to marry her. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about that today. We are. As we said, we heard Iris' message yesterday. And today we're going to hear Dwayne's story. And uh, this is kind of rare for us to do a husband and wife uh, team like this. But... Uh, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Dwayne's past was just as destructive as was Iris's, and now they travel together as volunteer missionaries for the North American Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, telling their story uh, to about anyone who will listen mm -hmm. to them, and uh, God is using them in a good work, and uh, with that, we'll step aside and uh, get started with Dwayne's story. And uh, you know what, John, one of our purposes here at Focus on the Family is to give exposure to good messages like this. I hope the Lord uses this um, presentation on these two days to expand Iris and Dwayne's uh, ministry as they try to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get on with it. This was recorded at a pastor's conference in Indiana. Well, I'm going to ask you all to kind of do me a favor and... Try not to talk so much, because I already got sweaty hands, and I don't do too good with a bunch of preachers. I'd rather be out talking to a bunch of street people anytime. They're a lot easier to talk to than you. <laughs> I met Iris 12 years ago. 
way I met Iris, I was working on a job site in Houston, Texas. I had a beard about down to the middle of my waist. I had hair past my waist. I lived in a 1952 international school bus with two big German Shepherd dogs that were my life. And dogs went everywhere I went. They went to work with me, went to beer joints with me at night. I drove a three-wheel motorcycle with a Volkswagen van engine in the back and a Triumph motorcycle on the front and three seats, a big saddle seat up front for me and two Ford van seats over the wheels in the back. And I said, load up, them dogs got on them back seats. And when I went to work, I got to work and I said, stay. And they sat there. And I had a man working for me that was a college graduate, Texas A&M, engineer's degree. Even worked for NASA years before that. Has his name on patents of solar equipment that he designed and some of his equipment's on the moon still working right now. And in the 80s, he couldn't even get a job as an engineer. And he was working as a painter's helper and he had to do what I told him to do. I loved it. And that man walked up to me two weeks before Christmas, almost 13 years ago now, and this is what he said to me. He said, Blue, I'd like you to come home with me for the Christmas holidays. You need to meet my sister. She used to be a liar and a thief just like you. I wanted to punch that boy right in the mouth. But more than I wanted to punch him in the mouth. See, Christmas had a special meaning for me, folks. Real special. And it wasn't Jesus. And it wasn't trees and lights and gifts. Christmas meant one thing to me. Everybody went home. I didn't go home. Years before that, I was born in Denver, Colorado. Lived there two years. My real father left. My mother, she moved to uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. I grew up there. Rode motorcycles there. Quit school there, got on drugs there, lied and stole and abused my mother. Oh, I never hit her, but I called her filthy names knowing she'd cry and go to her bedroom and I could do what I wanted. I stole from her, I broke in her house because I knew at three o'clock in the afternoon she'd be sorting mail at the post office and she didn't come home till 11 at night. And me and my buddies could park our motorcycles out in front of her house and kick in the door and do anything we wanted. And when I was 21 years of age, I just kicked in that door one afternoon and made me a sandwich, turned on the stereo, and called my buddies and said, Line them up, boys. We're going to party till 11 o'clock. We can do anything we want. She's at work. But before they got to that house that day, I walked into the bathroom and found my mother's body on the floor. She'd taken over 200 pills, the police told me later, to kill herself. The reason she did that is standing in front of you right now. I never went to her funeral. She was buried in Cooper, Michigan. The day she was buried, I got so drunk, I just wanted that day to go away. I never went to my mother's grave. I left there and went to Texas and lived in a bus. And I knew tonight as I was sharing with you, I was going to get to thank some people that were sitting here. And they're sitting behind me and sitting right over there. Because years later, after I was saved, I was at a church, their church. They gave me and Iris some money and a church van and allowed me to drive back up as we shared our testimonies in their church one weekend and gave me three extra days with their van and their money. And I drove back up to Cooper, Michigan and saw my mother's grave and said goodbye to her. I met Iris 12, almost 13 Christmases ago. Ernest had called her. She lived in Atlanta, Georgia then, working with 
Glenn Shepherd, underneath the prayer and spiritual awakening as a mission service corps volunteer. Still is. Now it's some other guy nobody's ever heard of, Henry Henry uh, Blackaby or something. And we was in that office before he was, so. But Ernest called her in Atlanta and said, Sister, don't bring home any weirdos with you this year. I already got one. And he said, Sister, this boy I'm bringing home lives in a bus with a bunch of dogs. And it's hard to tell who's the hairiest, him or the dogs. He's got a filthy mouth and he don't even know how to read, Sister. So I just wanted to tell you I'm bringing him. Don't buy him any books or anything. We don't want to embarrass him. And, and I went home with Ernest. I met Iris. She had got me a Christmas present. You know what? I didn't get none of them, nothing. I took my drugs with me to that little farm in Rye, Texas, because I figured I was just going to eat their food and sleep in a nice bed for a couple of nights. And when I'd had all I wanted from them, if they didn't like me, it didn't matter. I'd just get stoned and sit in their living room and watch their Christmas tree blink. What do I care? I was going to take everything I could get from them. When I was through, I'd leave. When they started passing out gifts from under that tree, they handed me a box. And I didn't expect nothing from anybody. But I opened that box, and inside that box was the Bible on cassette tapes and a cassette player to go with it. Can you imagine my joy? All I got to know is who gave me that, and I'm going to shove it down their throat. And I asked Ernest, who gave me that? And he just smiled and said, my sister got that for you. And I went, all right. I waited for my opportunity in that house because I'd already heard everything you just heard. Ernest had told me at work his sister had been a prostitute, a heroin addict. She'd had abortions. She'd been in prison. She was garbage, and I knew it all. And I'd wait for my opportunity and teach this woman a lesson she'd never forget. I knew how to hurt people. It started as a 13-year-old boy in my mother's home, and by the time I was 21, I'd done all the damage she could stand. I'd teach this woman a lesson she'd never forget. And I waited for my opportunity, and she was alone in the living room later that night, and I sat down beside her on the couch. And I began to tell her every filthy thing her brother had shared with me about her. I'd have her weeping before I was through with her. She'd run to the bedroom, and I'd just go get on my three-wheeler with my dogs and get out of there and forget her. She just needed a good lesson. And I told her every single thing he told me when I was through. She said, that's true. I'm going to a church this Sunday to share that story. Why don't you come with me? <laughs> but I ain't kidding you, folks. Just like you see that little coyote when the light bulb goes off over his head. I had the ID of all IDs. I'll go. I'll teach this woman a lesson. This is going to be great. I normally never cut or trim my beard. It stuck out all different lengths, and at 55 miles an hour down the freeway, kind of had its own part. <laughs> I wore three rubber bands in my hair so it wouldn't get in a knot, but for church, I pulled all three of them out, let it hang everywhere. Put on my favorite T-shirt. had a big hole in it right here. You could see my stomach right through it. I figured I might as well wear something holy. I'm going to church. <laughs> I took a brush and run through the beards that was puffed up as big as I could get it to be. I thought about putting a plastic spider or something in there, you know, that'll look good. 
I really figured she'd never take me to no church. She'd just have a heart attack when she saw me. But she pulled in, picked me up in my bus, and started asking me questions about what I'd done that week. And just talked to me. Asked me how I trained them dogs to stay on that motorcycle. And asked me all kinds of questions before I knew it. We was in a church parking lot. Coming through two doors in the back. Way smaller than this place. Just two sections. And we came through the back door together. I figured everybody in the place must have been some kind of a town with a disease. Because they all had asthma. About the second row from the back, this little woman, one of them women, not gray hair, I'm talking blue hair. She was about 99, little bent up fingers. She probably weighed 70 and she was 99 years old. Wrinkly, blue headed, weird looking little woman. Stepped right out of the aisle, right in front of me and put that little wrinkled hand out and looked up at me grinning and said, we're glad to see you today. thought she must be stoned, man. <laughs> and I sat in that church and heard that woman share, and it still amazes me. I thought, why is she telling them the truth? What difference does it make? They don't know nothing. Lie to them. It's so simple. You can lie to anybody. There isn't anybody I can't fool. And when she was through, a preacher got up and he said, maybe you're here today and you're a sinner. Well, you know, folks, I didn't have to bow my head and go, I wonder if... Uh, this was a no-brainer, folks. I'd probably fall into the center class. I was a liar, a thief, a bully. I couldn't read, but I figured that book they were all holding probably said some have lied, stole, abused their family, done drugs, and fallen short of the glory of God. I had no idea. It just said all have sinned. thought I was a sinner because I was wicked. I didn't know I was a sinner simply because I was born. I didn't understand the gospel. I thought the book was a bunch of junk. And she gave me her card and said, if you ever want to talk to me, I'll, you can call me even late at night. Anytime you want to call me, you can call me collect. And I got back to the bus, load up. And I went cruising through the park where everybody pointed at me and I could be the center of attention. And I said, forget that lady, she's crazy. But two weeks later, when the beer joint closed late one night, and I went there every single night. I was at the beer joint every night. Everybody knew me. Nobody even parked in my section where them two dogs were sitting. That was my parking spot. The bar closed, and I wasn't drunk enough to go to sleep. I wasn't drunk enough to forget my past. There was no present to look at, and there's never going to be a future. I hated seeing my mother's body over and over and over. I'll just walk down to the payphone and call that lady. What difference does it make? Most of you Christians are just sitting up at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning waiting for somebody to call you collect anyhow, ain't you? <laughs> well, I care. It don't cost me nothing. And I called her. We talked a long time. I finally got tired of it. Hung up and went back up to the bus, went to sleep, went to work the next day. A couple weeks later, I called her again. A couple weeks after that, two times. And a week after that, every single night of the week. And by April, on a long-distance phone call with that woman, she said this to me one night, way after the bar had closed. She said, Blue, what would you do if you were standing in a church at an altar getting married? And I knew I'd never be married. Women are something you use. You don't keep them. She said, what if you met a real lady that really wanted to be your wife? No real lady would ever go anywhere with me. I was free. I could go anywhere. But I'd never be married. I'd never have a home. I had a bus. 
She said, pretend you're standing in a church and I didn't say nothing. And she said, the preacher would say, Blue, do you take this woman to be your wife? And I just held the phone. I didn't say nothing. She said, you'd be nervous, but you'd say, I do. Then the preacher asked that young woman, do you take Blue here to be your husband? And she'd smile in her white dress and say, I do. But I got this other boyfriend, Tom, and I'm going to marry Blue. But every Friday night after I tuck Blue into bed, I'm going to just slip over to Tom's house and sleep with, you know, it's just a physical thing with me and Tom. I started yelling at her over the phone. I said, you're crazy, lady. You think I'd marry some girl that's going to sleep with some other guy telling me at the altar? That's stupid, lady. And she said, you wouldn't accept her commitment? I said, that ain't a commitment, lady. That is trash. And she said, what do you think God will do with your commitment? And for the first time in my life, folks, I realized that ain't just believing in Jesus. It's a commitment of your life. And a big, ugly, hairy man standing in a parking lot just stood there and said, Hey, lady, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to talk to God. I don't even know how to read. I don't know nothing. For 33 years, lady, I've been living for me, and if God's real, I want to live for Him. And the greatest truth I've ever learned was revealed to me that very moment, folks. You can lie to your mom. You can lie and steal from your biker buddies. You can lie to yourself. But you'll never lie to Jesus. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, hanging on Calvary, knew I was a thief and a bully, a murderer of his own mother. Only my fingerprints weren't on the pills, so I wasn't arrested for the crime. But hanging on Calvary, Jesus yelled, Dwayne Blue, I love you. I'm dying for you. I met that Jesus in a beer joint parking lot 12 years ago. I joined a local church the very next Sunday. I met my first pastor on a Thursday when I drove into his church parking lot and told him I just got saved. Sir, I don't know nothing about church, and I don't know nothing about preachers. I always figured you were the laziest men on earth. You only work one day a week. <laughs> and since today's Thursday and you ain't doing nothing anyway, wherever you go, sir, I'm going. And his eyes bugged right out of his head. He explained me at the hospital all morning. He explained me to the preachers he met for lunch. And that Sunday morning, sitting on the front row, I cried through the whole service. I didn't cry the day I found my mother dead on the floor. I didn't cry the day they buried her. But I cried the day that man explained to me that the big, ugly, hairy boy had died. And there was a little boy now alive. And he could grow in Jesus and become something. Well, you folks, I didn't have to bow my head and say, oh, God, could I just get drunk every other night of the week? The only people I know in town's down there in that beer joint, God. I don't know nobody else. And it was a Baptist church I joined, folks. I sat on the front row. <laughs> Nobody told that boy it's against the rules. <laughs> See, this is the smart sections here. Look at that. Two empty rows. I sat there alone, folks. I was only ever afraid of one thing in my life. I've been beat up and I've beat up a few. I was afraid of one thing, being alone. You can be alone in a 1952 International School Bus or the front row. And I didn't want to be alone. But you know what? I knew that place was where I was going to be and I come to every activity that church had. On Tuesday night they had something called visitation. Only six people came to that. And the preacher's the only one that would take me. He'd have to explain me again on Tuesday night. Nobody else would go anywhere with me. I had Wednesday night prayer service, about 50 of them had come to that. 
Sunday school on Sunday morning. And I went to that. The first day they put me in the class, there was eight men. The next Sunday I came back, there was only one. I'm sure glad the teacher came back. I couldn't read. But I came to everything that church had going. I didn't miss nothing. I just wanted to get involved, folks, in anything Jesus was doing. You know what? Two weeks after I was saved, the lady I used to see every night of the week in that beer joint named Miss Alice. In her 60s, a good woman. I never saw her drunk. I never saw her drink more than three beers in any night. She'd come in that bar after work and drink three beers, and most nights every single one of them had been paid for before she even got there. Because all us boys who went in that place every night knew Miss Alice was coming down there on Friday with five gallons of spaghetti or five gallons of chili or five gallons of stew or something, and we'd all eat Miss Alice's home cooking on Friday. Well, Miss Alice came over to my bus two weeks after I quit going to that beer joint. She had a pot of soup in one hand and a bottle of liquor in the other, and she knocked on that bus. Said, Blue, we ain't seen you in a couple of weeks. I thought you might want some food or need some booze. If you don't have any money, we still want you to come down to the bar tonight. We'll even pay for your drinks. We just want to know what happened to you. I told her. I said, Miss Alice, the man you come to visit, he don't live here anymore. Miss Alice, he died two weeks ago right down there in the very parking lot that you're in every night. I was on a phone call with a really weird woman from Georgia. And that old boy died, Miss Alice, and I live here now in his bus with his dogs to drive his motorcycle. I go to a little church down the road where they don't sit by me, park by me, or talk to me, but I ain't never going to be alone again, Miss Alice. Fourth Sunday at my little church, it rained Saturday night. That old three-wheeler didn't start after a rain. And I didn't make it to Sunday school, Sunday morning, or Sunday night service, and not one person. Preacher, youth director, music man, Sunday school teacher, nobody came by that bus all week long. See, folks, I don't know you sitting here tonight. I know what's out there. I lived out there for 33 years, and they will come after your community. They'll bring the booze and the dope and the garbage right to them. But you? My mother died on a linoleum floor, East Alcott Street, Kalamazoo, Michigan, a 40-year-old woman. She owns a Bible. I got it. It's unsigned, unopened, binding, unbroken. My mother never attended church. There's no evidence in my mother's life that she ever had any kind of a commitment to Jesus Christ. My mother is in hell right now. Eight churches live within two miles of her home and never, never did one knock on her door. Your community needs what you have tonight. Our mission? Invite some piece of garbage into your home for a meal. That piece of garbage might be me or Iris. I think it's obvious that the pastors at that conference, uh, Dr. Dobson, appreciated Dwayne Blue's story of a wayward past and how he came to the place he's at today, now serving in missions work.
Did that carry you along with it? It was powerful. <laughs> it was just great to listen to. It sure was. Uh, Dwayne is a new creature in Christ now. You know, it's a bit ironic uh, that he was standing there in front of pastors mm. challenging them to evangelize, to reach out to people like himself and his mother so they don't slip through the cracks just because no one cared enough to talk to them or to befriend them, uh, to invite them to a social outing or a church outreach. Uh, you know, I, I heard a pastor the other day say the best way to introduce someone to Christ is to tell your story. And yeah. that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree that. with it. But there is a step that comes before that. Hmm. You need to ask them what their story is. Uh, you need to show your concern about them because most people feel as uh, Iris and Dwayne did that nobody cares. Nobody would want to know their story, that they have no value, that they have no worth. And once you express that love to another person and get into their life, then they want to know about your story mm -hmm. and why you have a smile on your face. And, and that concern gives you a platform from which to share of your story. Of course it does. If we keep away from people who are different from ourselves, uh, those who don't smell quite right or look quite right or dress quite right, we could be missing out on a wonderful opportunity to see God do a marvelous work like he did for these two people that we've heard from yesterday and today. Well, and, and Jesus' ministry was all about those people that it didn't was. quite fit the religious mold of the Pharisees. Yeah. And, uh, and we don't want to be guilty of what the Pharisees were guilty of, and that is judging from the outside. I can just picture mm -hmm. Jesus walking along the street and stopping at the corner to talk to Duane and Iris and just share with them and, and bring them into his love. And yet, I have to admit to you, my inclination would not have been to go over and put an arm around them hmm. because they would seem hopeless, uh, you know. Uh, but Jesus cares about those people just as much as he does you and me who uh, came to know him early. Hmm. There's a message there for all of us today. Well, there sure is. And I'm really hoping these testimonies we've heard in the last couple of broadcasts have expanded our thinking and will stimulate more compassion, more care for those around us. We're called to always be sharing the love of Christ with others. And uh, again, perhaps this program uh, will challenge our listeners to do that. Well, today's program was provided by Focus on the Family. Our website is simplyfamily.org, family.org. Thanks to Jan Nations, our executive producer, Jim Adam and Will Kaiser for taking care of engineering and production, and our producer, John Scott Welch. Your host is psychologist and author, Dr. James Dobson. And I'm John Fuller, inviting you back next time when we'll turn our hearts toward home. <laughs>